Autoeroticism A Study of the Spontaneous Manifestations of the Sexual Impulse Part 1 Section 3 Of Studies in the Psychology of Sex Volume 1 By Havelock Ellis This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autoeroticism a Study of the Spontaneous Manifestations of the Sexual Impulse Part 1, Section 3 To the early Protestant mind, as illustrated by Luther, there was something diseased, though not impure, in sexual excitement during sleep. Thus, in a stable talk, Luther remarks that girls who have such dreams should be married at once, taking the medicine which God has given. It is only of comparatively recent years that medical science has obtained currency for the belief that this autoerotic process is entirely normal. Blumenbach stated that nocturnal emissions are normal. Sir James Paget declared that he had never known celibate men who had not such emissions from once or twice a week to twice every three months, both extremes being within the limits of good health while Sir Lord of Brunton considers once a fortnight or once a month about the usual frequency. At these periods, the emissions often following two nights in succession. Rolder believes that they may normally follow for several nights in succession. Hammond considers that they occur about once a fortnight. Ribbing regards 10 to 14 days as a normal interval. Lowenfeld puts the normal frequency at about once a week. This seems to be nearer the truth as regards most fairly healthy young men. In proof of this, it is only necessary to refer to the exact records of healthy young adults summarized in the study of periodicity in the present volume. It occasionally happens, however, that nocturnal emissions are entirely absent. I am acquainted with some cases. In other fairly healthy young men, they seldom occur except at times of intellectual activity or of anxiety and worry. Lately there has been some tendency for medical opinion to revert to the view of Luther and to regard sexual excitement during sleep as a somewhat unhealthy phenomenon. Moll is a distinguished advocate of this view. Sexual excitement during sleep is a normal result of celibacy. But it is another thing to say that it is, on that account, satisfactory. We might then, Moll remarks, maintain that nocturnal incontinence of urine is satisfactory, since the bladder is thus emptied. Yet, we take every precaution against this by insisting that the bladder shall be emptied before going to sleep. This remark is supported by the fact to which I find that both men and women can bear witness that sexual excitement during sleep is more fatiguing than in the waking state, though this is not an invariable rule, and it is sometimes found to be refreshing. In a similar way, Eulenburg states that nocturnal emissions are no more normal than coughing or vomiting. Nocturnal emissions are usually, though not invariably, accompanied by dreams of a voluptuous character in which the dreamer becomes conscious in a more or less fantastic manner of the more or less intimate presence or contact 
of a person of the opposite sex. It would seem, as a general rule, that the more vivid and voluptuous a dream, the greater is a physical excitement, and the greater also the relief experienced on awakening. Sometimes the erotic dream occurs without any emission, and not infrequently, the emission takes place after the dreamer has awakened. The widest and most comprehensive investigation of erotic dreams is that carried out by Gualino in northern Italy, and based on inquiries among hundred normal men, doctors, teachers, lawyers, etc., who had all had experience of the phenomenon. Gualino shows that erotic dreams with emissions, whether or not seminal, began somewhat earlier than the period of physical development as ascertained by Maro for youths of the same part of northern Italy. Gualino found that all his cases had had erotic dreams at the age of 17. Maro found 8% of youths still sexually underdeveloped at that age. And while sexual development began at 13 years, erotic dreams began at 12. Their appearance was preceded in most cases for some months by erections. In 37% of the cases, there had been no actual sexual experiences, either masturbation or intercourse. In 23%, there had been masturbation. In the rest, some form of sexual contact. The dreams are mainly visual, tactual elements coming second, and the dramatis persona is either an unknown woman or only known by sight, and in the majority is at all events in the beginning, an ugly or fantastic figure, becoming more attractive later in life, but never identical with the woman loved during waking life. This, as Guolino points out, accords with the general tendency for the emotions of the day to be latent in sleep. Masturbation only formed the subject of the dream in four cases. The emotional state in the pubertal stage apart from pleasure, was 37% anxiety, 17% desire, 14% fear. In the adult stage, anxiety and fear receded to 7% and 6% respectively. 33 of the subjects as a result of sexual or general disturbances had had nocturnal emissions without dreams. These were always found exhausting. Normally, Erotic dreams are the most vivid of all dreams. In no case was there knowledge of any monthly or other cyclic periodicity in the occurrence of the manifestations. In 34% of cases, they tended to occur very soon after sexual intercourse. In numerous cases, they were peculiarly frequent during courtship, when the young man was in the habit of kissing and caressing his betrothed but ceased after marriage. It was not noted that position in bed or a full bladder exerted any marked influence in the occurrence of erotic dreams. Repletion of the seminal vesicles is regarded as a main factor. In Germany, erotic dreams have been discussed by Volkelt and especially by Lowenfeld, while in America, Stanley Hall thus summarizes the general characteristics of erotic dreams in men. In by far the most cases, consciousness, even when the act causes full awakening from sleep, finds only scattered images, single words, gestures and acts, 
many of which would perhaps normally constitute no provocation. Many times the mental activity seems to be remote and incidental, and the mind retains in the morning nothing except perhaps a peculiar dress pattern, the shape of a fingernail, the back of a neck, the toss of a head, the movement of a foot, or the dressing of the hair. In such cases, these images stand out for a time with the distinctness of a cameo and suggest that the origin of erotic fetishisms is largely to be found in sexual dreams. Very rarely is there any imagery of the organs themselves, but the tendency to irradiation is so strong as to reinforce the suggestion of so many other phenomena in this field that nature designs this experience to be long-circuited and that it may give a peculiar ictus to almost any experience. When waking occurs just afterward, it seems at least possible that there may be much imagery that existed but failed to be recalled to memory, possibly because the flow of psychic impressions was over very familiar fields and this, therefore, was forgotten while any eruption into new or unwanted channels stood out with distinctness. All these psychic phenomena, although very characteristic of man in his prime, are not so of the dreams of dawning puberty, which are far more vivid. I may further quote the experience of an anonymous contributor, a healthy and chaste man between 30 and 38 years of age, to the American Journal of Psychology. Legs and breasts often figured prominently in these dreams, the other sexual parts, however, very seldom, and then they turned out to be male organs in most cases. There were but two instances of copulation dreamt. Girls and young women were the usual dramatis personae, and curiously enough, often the aggressors. Sometimes the face or faces were well known, sometimes only once seen, sometimes entirely unknown. The orgasm occurs at the most erotic part of the dream, the physical and psychical running parallel. This most erotic or suggestive part of the dream was very often quite an innocent-looking incident enough. As for example, while passing a strange young woman overtaken on the street, she calls after me some question. At first, I pay no heed, but when she calls again, I hesitate whether to turn back and answer or not. Emission. Again, walking beside a young woman, she said, Shall I take your arm? I offered and she took it, entwining her arm around it and raising it high. Emission. I could feel stronger erection as she asked the question. Sometimes a word was enough, sometimes a gesture. Once, emission took place on my noticing the young woman's diminished fingernails. Another example of fetishism was my being curiously attracted in a dream by the pretty embroidered figure on a little girl's dress. As an illustration of the strange metamorphoses that occur in dreams, I, one night, in my dream, fell in love with a partridge, which changed under my caresses to a beautiful girl who yet retained an indescribable wild bird innocence, grace and charm, a sort of undina. 
These experiences may be regarded as fairly typical of the erotic dreams of healthy and chaste young men. The bird, for instance, that changes into a woman while retaining some elements of the bird has been encountered in erotic dreams by other young men. It is indeed remarkable that, as de Gibertinus observes, the bird is a well-known phallic symbol. While Mado finds that birds have a sexual significance both in life and in dreams. The appearance of male organs in the dream woman is doubtless due to the dreamer's greater familiarity with those organs. But though it occurs occasionally, it can scarcely be said to be the rule in erotic dreams. Even men who have never had connection with a woman are quite commonly aware of the presence of a woman's sexual organs in the erotic dreams. Maul's comparison of nocturnal emissions of semen with nocturnal incontinence of urine suggests an interesting resemblance, and at the same time seeming contrast. In both cases, we are concerned with viscera which, when overfilled or unduly irritable, spasmodically eject their contents during sleep. There is a further resemblance which usually becomes clear when, as occasionally happens, nocturnal incontinence of urine persists on to late childhood or adolescence. Both phenomena are frequently accompanied by vivid dreams of appropriate character. Thus, in one case known to me, a child of seven who occasionally wetted the bed usually dreamed at the same time that she wanted to make water and was out of doors, running to find a suitable spot, which she at last found, and on awakening, discovered that she had wetted the bed. Fifteen years later, she still sometimes had similar dreams, which caused her much alarm until, when thoroughly awake, she realized that no accident had happened. These later dreams were not the result of any strong desire to urinate. In another case with which I am acquainted, a little girl of eight, after mental excitement or indigestible meals, occasionally wetted the bed, dreaming that she was frightened by someone running after her, and wetted herself in consequence, after the manner of the Ganymede in Eagle's Clutch, as depicted by Rembrandt. These two cases, it may be noted, belong to two quite different types. In the first case, the full bladder suggests to imagination the appropriate actions for relief, and the bladder actually accepts the imaginative solution offered. It is, according to Fiorini's phrase, somnambulism of the bladder. In the other case, there is no such somnambulism, but a psychic and nervous disturbance, not arising in the bladder at all, irradiates convulsively, and whether or not the bladder is overfull, attacks a vesicle nervous system, which is not yet sufficiently well balanced to withstand the inflow of excitement. In children of somewhat nervous temperament, manifestations of this kind may occur as an occasional accident up to about the age of seven or eight, and thereafter the nervous control of the bladder having become firmly established, they cease to happen, the nervous energy required to affect the bladder sufficing to wake the dreamer. In very rare cases, however, the phenomenon may still occasionally happen, even in adolescence or later, in individuals who are otherwise quite free from it. This is most apt to occur in young women, even in waking life. 
In men, it is probably extremely rare. The erotic dream seems to differ flagrantly from the vesicle dream in that it occurs in adult life and is with difficulty brought under control. The contrast is, however, very superficial. When we remember that sexual activity only begins normally at puberty, we realize that the youth of 20 is, in the matter of sexual control, scarcely much older than in the matter of vesicle control he was at the age of six. Moreover, if we were habitually, from our earliest years, to go to bed with a full bladder, as a chaste man goes to bed with unrelieved sexual system, it would be fully as difficult to gain vesicle control during sleep as it now is to gain sexual control. Ultimately, such sexual control is attained. After the age of 40, it seems that erotic dreams with emission become more and more rare. Either the dream occurs without actual emission, exactly as dreams of urination occur in adults with full bladder, or else the organic stress, with or without dreams, serves to awaken the sleeper before any emission has occurred. But this stage is not easily or completely attained. St. Augustine, even in the period when he wrote his Confessions, mentions as a matter of course that sexual dreams not merely arouse pleasure, but gain the consent of the will. Not infrequently, there is a struggle in sleep, just as the hypnotic subject may resist suggestions. Thus, a lady of 35 dreamed a sexual dream and awoke without excitement. Again, she fell asleep and had another dream of sexual character, but resisted the tendency to excitement and again awoke. Finally, she fell asleep and had a third sexual dream, which was this time accompanied by the orgasm. The factors involved in the acquirement of vesicle and sexual control during sleep are the same, but the conditions are somewhat different. There is a very intimate connection between the vesicle and the sexual spheres, as I have elsewhere pointed out. This connection is psychic as well as organic. Both in men and women, a full bladder tends to develop erotic dreams. Raymond and Janet state that nocturnal incontinence of urine accompanied by dreams of urination, may be replaced at puberty by masturbation. In the reverse direction, Freud believes that masturbation plays a large part in causing the bedwetting of children who have passed the age when that usually ceases, and he even finds that children are themselves aware of the connection. The diagnostic value of sexual dreams as an indication of the sexual nature of the subject when awake has been emphasized by various writers. Sexual dreams tend to reproduce and even to accentuate those characteristics which make the strongest sexual appeal to the subject when awake. At the same time, this general statement has to be qualified, more especially as regards inverted dreams. In the first place, a young man, however normal, who is not familiar with the feminine body when awake, is not likely to see it when asleep, even in dreams of women. In the second place, the confusions and combinations of dream imagery often tend to obliterate sexual distinctions, however free from perversions the subjects may be. Thus, a correspondent tells me of a healthy man of very pure character, totally inexperienced in sexual matters, 
and never having seen a woman naked who in her sexual dreams always sees a woman with male organs though he has never had any sexual inclinations for men and is much in love with a lady the confusions and associations of dream imagery leading to abnormal combinations may be illustrated by a dream which once occurred to me after reading Joist's account of how a young negress whose tattoo marks he was sketching, having become bored, suddenly pressed her hands to her breast, spurting two streams of lukewarm milk into his face, and ran away laughing. I dreamed of a woman performing a similar action, not from her breast, however, but from a penis with which she was furnished. Again, by another kind of confusion, a man dreams sexually that he is with a man, although the figure of the partner revealed in the dream is a woman. The following dream in a normal man who had never been or wished to be in the position shown by the dream may be quoted. I dreamed that I was a big boy and that a younger boy lay close beside me and that we, or certainly he, had seminal emissions. I was complacently passive and had a feeling of shame when the boy was discovered. On awaking, I found I had no emission, but I was lying very close to my wife. The day before, I had seen boys in a swimming match. This was, it seems to me, an example of dream confusion, and not an erotic inverted dream. End of Autoeroticism, Part 1, Section 3